Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Battalion Chief Jason Cascone has served in the FDNY since 2001. He is currently assigned to Battalion 17 in the Bronx. Prior assignments include Engine 67 and Ladder 36 as a firefighter, Engine 332 as a lieutenant, and Ladder 11 UFO as a captain. He holds a BBA in accounting from Pace University and an MPA from Baruch College, Mark's School of Public and International Affairs. He attended the West Point Counterterrorism Leadership Program, the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, and the FDNY Mental Performance Initiative. He's a content producer for the department's Bureau of Fire Operations and is the editor-in-chief of WNYF Magazine, the FDNY's official training publication, which has been published since 1940. Jay, before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge that we've been working together for, what did we say, seven years? At least. Yeah. So there are questions that we actually have prepared today that I actually don't know the answers to, even though we have spent, I don't know how many hours talking and working together, but I am very grateful and excited to have you on the podcast today for this conversation. Pleasure to be here, Patty. (laughs) So like most interviews, I'd like to start off with your early life and discussing when you decided to be an FDNY firefighter. Yeah, that story begins in high school. Um, you know, I had a, probably a pretty typical uh, upbringing. I was into sports, uh, played football, hockey, lacrosse um, when I was younger and in high school. The fire department story begins uh, senior year of high school. And uh, I, I just, uh, in, in the name of being a bit self-effaced, I was a bit of a knucklehead in high school, right? So I wasn't exactly, uh, you know, an A student. So here I am, my senior year, I'm looking for any way I possibly can to get out of physics, right? Which is, uh, you know, apparently it's, uh, it's not required at, at White Plains High School. So I take an elective, I take forensics. And somewhere during the course, uh, we're doing some sort of module on fire investigation. And a guy comes in from the White Plains Fire Department. The guy's name is Jim Feeney. Um, and now it's, it's funny, much, many years later, I'm actually still connected to him. At the time, I didn't know him. Uh, he comes in. And he's in uniform, and, you know, I really didn't have much, I knew nothing about the fire department whatsoever. And he comes in, and, and the guy, you know, in my 16, 17-year-old eyes, I mean, this guy was just a badass, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he really, just seeing this guy up there with a patch on his shoulder, it just resonated. What he had to say was just awesome. And uh, he really got off topic, really, from, like, the fire investigation, academic stuff. He got more into, like, the job. And he was just talking about, he was selling the job, but what an awesome job it was. And I'm just enthralled at this point. So I was kind of hooked right there. So I, uh, from there, you know, I, I had a buddy who, um, whose father was involved in the volunteer fire department in North White Plains. A uh, guy, uh, still a good friend to this day, a guy's name is J.T. Nichols. He's uh, actually, well, he's a chief of the White Plains Fire Department. So, at, but at this point in White Plains, it's a paid fire department. I didn't even really understand that volunteer fire departments existed. So I go and I, uh, I speak to uh, JT's father, and um, he kind of explains the deal. And he explains that, you know, my 18th birthday, I can walk down there and I can become a, a firefighter. You know, I'm like, 
wow, that's that's crazy. Okay. So, uh, and I did. I went, I might have been, I don't know, it might have been days after my 18th birthday. I went down Northway uh, Plains Fire Department. I walked in. I told them I wanted to join. Now, fast forward a little bit. I was I was going off to college. I ended up uh, at Pace University, which is up in uh, Pleasantville. Yeah. And I'm living on campus up there. And I very quickly realized that North White's not going to be accessible from where I'm living at this point. So I, I go down and I join the local fire department in Briarcliff, which is where my dorms were at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, I spent four years there and um, it was kind of my introduction to the fire service. And uh, it, it was great. I mean, the more time I spent there, the more involved and more engaged I got. And I just went for all the training, became an EMT. I was riding in the ambulance corps. I was pursuing every avenue I could to get more involved in this. Um, Somewhere along the way, uh, up on the bulletin board in the firehouse, there was a flyer. Uh, it was the, the, the notice of examination for the 1999 FDMY exam. Um, I, I remember seeing it up on the board there and just being like, wow. You know, I'd already heard, I think the, the chatter around that time, you know, was FDMY was, you know, where you wanted to be, right? right. If you're, if you're going to be a fireman, it's like, it's the New York Yankees of the fire department. Right? Can I pause you for a second and ask what you were going to school for? Yep. So I'm at Pace. I was in the business school. I was uh, in the accounting program and I was up there. I was playing lacrosse. I was uh, I was having a blast. It was mm-hmm. really cool. You know, at the same time, uh, you know, I was, I was getting down to that volunteer firehouse uh, as much as I could. And um, when I saw the NOE, it just jumped off the wall at me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I signed up. That was the 99 exam. It was a, it was a process, you know, uh, as you know, uh, several year process. You go down for the written exam and you wait months and then you go for a physical mm-hmm. and you wait and you go for a medical and a psych and, and all that. And yeah. um, so that process took a few years. And, and, you know, as luck would have it, I'm just graduating now. It's the spring of 2001, spring semester, and uh, I'm coming up on graduation, and my list number was coming up, and here I am. I'm graduating in May, and, and I'm up for the uh, the July class, and uh, funny story, I still remember where I was when I got, I was actually, I was traveling with a buddy in Europe. Somehow, my mother got in touch with me in Europe, and uh, I was able to, oh man, oh, I better I better get the phone and call this investigator, and I did, and I, uh, so I called in, and um Flew home, and I was in uh, July of uh, 2001. I was in the, in the fire academy. Did you have any plans after college if the fire department hadn't called you? There was literally no plan B. That's why you were bouncing around Europe. <laughs> there was there was no plan B. I, um, I, I think I just, you know, I didn't know much about the fire department. I had only met one New York City firefighter prior to getting on the job. I, I wasn't, you know, what? one of these guys. My dad wasn't on the job. I didn't have family. I didn't. I had no social connections whatsoever to the job. Uh, literally had met one guy through the volunteer fire department who was a, a New York City fireman. And ironically, years later, we ended up working together. We were in the same company. But uh, everything that I learned was after I got on the fire department, you know. Well, I guess we can jump into the training academy. What was training like after having been so involved with the volunteer departments? Were you comfortable going into the training academy? Right. So now I'm in the academy. I, I mean, I'm on cloud nine. You know, this is exactly what I wanted to do. And I mean, you know, when I was young and maybe to some extent still, uh, maybe I still am. I, I was enthusiastic. I mean, I was really. I would say you still are. <laughs> <laughs> I was super, super fired up. I mean, uh, it was a, a, just a, a dream come true, you know, so much so that, you know, I, I, I still remember, I, you know, I'm in the academy and I'm, I'm 21 years old and I'm like walking around like on my days off on the weekends. I'm wearing, I'm still wearing my red t-shirt with like sharpie black pen cascone written across my chest like just want everyone on earth to know that you know i'm now a a new york city fireman and uh so i I was on cloud nine and it was fun i mean it was it was like 
being at Disneyland. The evolutions were uh, were all fun, and um, the guys uh, in my squad. I'm still connected to some of them today, <laughs> but we didn't know what was what was on the doorstep. You know, it was like this. You know, ignorance is bliss. You know, and I still remember Family Day, the weekend before uh, before 9/11. Parents are there and friends, and um, you know, you're just you're on the doorstep of this awesome career, and uh, we didn't know uh, what was coming. Right. So to be clear, you graduated the fire academy just days before 9/11. Can you walk us through your 9/11 experience and how you learned about the attacks at the World Trade Center? Yeah. So. And what's what's important to to note is that um, you know before I even get into the story is that you know I I wasn't an initial an initial responder you know I wasn't on duty in the firehouse that morning so we we finished uh, the academy it was actually the Friday before nine eleven and um, it's also kind of what's important to note too is that I Thursday before nine eleven we uh, we got our assignments it, it wasn't typical at the time they were doing a program they were calling it the fourteen week program it was sort of like uh, sort of connected to like the rotation program and. So we did eight weeks in the academy, and then they sent us, they gave us assignments to go out to the uh, firehouse for 14 weeks, and we were going to do seven weeks in the engine, seven weeks in the truck, and flip-flop. And then we were supposed to go back to the academy for three more weeks and then get our assignments. So I get assigned to Ladder 9 on Great Jones Street uh, in the East Village Thursday before, and, and I go down, and I meet the guys. Actually, as I'm, I leave the academy, and I'm driving down the FDR Drive, and I'm getting to Houston Street, and I'm, and I'm pulling off, and there's like... I can see like black smoke on like literally drifting across the highway. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? Like, that dude, is that, that building is on fire? Like, what the? It was so, it was, there was a job in the uh, projects on Avenue D. And I pull off the high, I'm still wearing my uniform and I pull over and Ladder 9 is at this fire. I think they're the fast truck or something. And I, uh, I get off and these guys are like looking at me like, who the hell, you know, who are you, kid? You know, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I'm the new probie. I followed them back. They go back. It wasn't much, you know. I go back to the uh, the firehouse, and um, I think I'd stopped. I got a cake, you know. You got to do that. So I uh, I show up at the firehouse. I meet the guys. I think that's the the critical point here. I meet whoever's on duty. You know, it's around to change of tours. So there's you know a ton of guys around. I'm getting introduced to people. You know, I I, I remember you know the one guy I think I spent the most time with uh, was John Tierney. John was a probie. I think he was in the first class off of that list, maybe the February class. And uh, remember talking to him for a while. He was showing me around. He was uh, going over the rig with me. You know, I remember him. I remember him being a hockey player. We were talking about hockey. We connected on that. I remember he was from Staten Island. You know, I spent some time with him and sadly he was he was killed on 9-11. That really kind of haunted me for a bit. There were others. You know, I remember meeting um, Mike Boyle and Dave Arce. I remember um, Keith Maynard. I remember a bunch of those guys and it was pretty intense you know a few days later when you know when these lists of of the missing were coming down and being in the firehouse there so i guess i'll rewind a bit so um the morning of of 9-11 um i'm home in some ways our class was uh was lucky in that we got assigned to instead of being in the field on the chart on 900 monday we got assigned to cfrd training at fort totten for uh monday night and tuesday night so monday night september 10th we were at Fort Totten, and it was like a late. We were there till eleven at night or something, and um, so uh, I'm, I was actually I'm embarrassed to say I was actually still sleeping uh, at oh eight four seven hours um, in the morning of September eleventh, and because uh, I had been out late, I wake up and you know there's a commotion in the house, and my parents are home, and, and I go over and I can see what's going on, and then uh, 
I, I remember actually the thought I was having at that moment too was like, damn, you know, I missed it. Like my, you know, ladder nine's got to be there. Like it's, it's downtown. Like this is huge. You know, it's, this is massive. Like, you know, I'm missing it, you know? And so fast forward, the second plane hits and then it's like, wow, this is not just a plane crash. You know, something, something's going on. Like this is, uh, this is on purpose. You know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know about terrorism. I don't know anything, but I just know that that wasn't an accident. I just realized that, like, now maybe I need to take some action. Like, I need to do something. I need to get involved. I call the academy, and um, someone picks up the phone, and they just say, hey, go to the closest firehouse forthwith. You know, and I'm like, 10-4, okay, let's go. You know, because it was the end of the academy, I had my gear from the rock. You know, I had my training gear, which was kind of unusual, but... Get in a car, drive down. I, I connected with a guy uh, who was in my squad, actually, Rob Lopez. I go to his house first. We make contact. You know, he gets some info. We end up at Co-op City uh, in the Bronx and uh, the firehouse there. At this moment, when we're driving up, there's a uh, an MTA bus. The guys had commandeered a city bus. This was a pretty common story, you know. I think that was happening all over the city. So they must have gotten instructions in the firehouses to do that. All I know is... Gear is being loaded onto the bus. I show up. The bus is literally about to leave, and I, and I just run over and make contact. Okay, get on the bus, kid. Okay. So uh, next thing you know, we're, we're on the road, and um, that bus ride was actually, like, it was a pretty memorable part of the day. It was just, it was intense. You know, there were a lot of guys on this bus, and they, it was a pretty, like, energetic, lively, you know, animated scene. I remember guys being angry, not yelling and shouting, but a lot of, like, fired up, angry guys, a lot of rhetoric. I think they all knew, you know, I I think I was a bit naive. I didn't really fully grasp, I don't think, what was going on, you know. And I do remember one of the memorable things, you know, I very very rarely remember, like, people's exact words, you know, especially that long ago. But I do remember an officer uh, being on the the bus and he says, he's, you know, hey, kid, you know, we just lost hundreds of guys down there. And I'm like, like, I'm in denial of this, but I don't understand that. Like, it's like, no way. I mean, that's not even possible. My thought process at that point was like, they wouldn't let that happen. You know, like, no way. Like, and I'm, as if, who is they, right? I don't even know who they is. But like, in my mind, I'm like, there's no way that hundreds of New York City firemen were just killed, you know? And the guy was absolutely right. I remember on that bus ride being on the Brooklyn Expressway, I remember at that point being able to see the plume from the uh, Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. And I remember that was powerful, like the just the size of that cloud of, of dust and, you know, gray smoke and black smoke. And that was a, kind of like a pretty intense view. And then um, remember, I think at one point, a guy getting off the bus and like, you know, yelling at a police officer potentially. And like the guy helping us, he got us through. And uh, we get down. Now we're on the West Side Highway, and we're moving south on the West Side Highway. And uh, at this point, now that we're we're flying because there's no traffic on the West Side Highway, it's it's been closed, and and we get all the way down as far as we can go until we hit emergency vehicles and parked cars and things. And uh, you know, the bus stopped, and then we uh, we offloaded. I'm digesting all of that. I have some follow up questions. I know you keep saying that you were in denial, but. Having heard we just lost hundreds of firefighters and seeing that black smoke, like at that point, were you starting to worry about your safety? I don't think I was really worried about my own safety uh, at that point. Again, I think um, a bit of naivety, a bit of denial, and and also trust. I mean, I, I truly trusted the guys that I was with mm-hmm. that like, you know, I mean, I'm at a point I don't know anything about the new i mean i i'm at a point i don't potentially don't even really fully understand that engine guys have 
black front pieces and truck guys have red front pieces. You know, I'm, I'm at that point, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, but I also have this blind trust that like mm-hmm. these guys that I'm with are legit. Mm-hmm. Like they know what they're doing. You know, what ends up happening is we get assigned to these five man teams. Um, they break it up, officer, five, five guys. And um, I get assigned to a guy named Lieutenant Mills. I will never forget for the rest of my life, Lieutenant Mills. Uh, I don't even actually know his first name. It, to me, it's, you know, his first name was Lieutenant. You know, that's, that's to me, that's all I know at this point. But I do remember he absolutely, the guy had his, his stuff together 100%. He was cool, calm, and collected. He, uh, I remember him saying to me, he's like, looking at me, you know, at this tender age, he's like, kid, do not leave my sight. You know, I want you at all times within arm's reach. And, and that was reassuring. You know, I'm like, a great, you know, yes, sir, Lou, I will not leave your sight. Trust mm-hmm. me. And so, you know, from there, what ends up happening, um, it turned into a kind of a hurry up, hurry up and wait operation. Mm-hmm. So we're down there. And, and again, I think it's what's important to know is like, again, I, I wasn't an initial responder. Mm-hmm. I wasn't on duty. I didn't go on the rigs to the World Trade Center with that bunch. Of, I was kind of in this second wave of, uh, of guys from thousands and thousands of New York City firefighters from all over the city, from all, you know, coming from different directions. Mm-hmm. And we arrived after the, after the collapse. You know, it was, I don't know what time it was. It was definitely after the second tower collapsed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was late morning. At this point now, you know, the leadership has been decimated. The chief of department has been killed. The first deputy commissioner, some incredibly senior, experienced people have been killed. And, and, and it just, as we're there, uh, you know, I think now it's it's become a lot more decentralized where you got, you know, battalion chiefs and deputy chiefs potentially now stepping up and just taking command of their little sectors, you know, like, mm-hmm. because the site's enormous and, and there's so many approaches to the site at this point. And I'm on, you know, the north side, but who knows what's going on, on on the east side and the south side. And the command and control at this point is is pretty much, from my perspective and understanding, is, is broken down. And now you've got these these guys who are stepping up and, and taking control and leading in pretty difficult circumstances. And so the call was made at, on my sector up there on, you know, west. I believe we were around Weston Chambers, and we were just told to stop and wait and we weren't allowed to go any further they just didn't want us i believe the main reason was that seven world trade center was still on fire and it mm. was it was absolutely roaring fire all day long uh, on any other day in american history like the collapse of seven world trade center would have been you know a pretty big story i remember when that building collapsed where from where we were on west street we were not probably close enough to be in danger, but but a little too close for comfort. And when it came down, I mean, that was just an absolutely unforgettable experience, something that I'll never forget. How long were you down there initially? By that time of the day, it was late in the afternoon. You know, I think everyone was pretty anxious. Everyone wanted to get involved. The guys around me are, are getting pretty anxious and pretty fired up. They want to get involved. They want to get into the, into the site and into the pile. There were still guys hanging around who were like on-duty guys from the morning who were like, covered in dust and like i remember you know because there was time to like talk to people right because we were waiting a while and uh the conversation i remember a a large recurring conversational morning was like looking for friends and everybody's walking around like trying to make sense of what happened and and find their friends and uh pretty heart-wrenching i mean especially given that like by this point i think it's like pretty well understood that we lost a lot of guys so fast forward Later on in the day, I think we get to the point where the guys in the in this north sector that were, uh, yeah, north sector, I guess that you you could say that we're in, um, are convincing enough to let whoever is in charge to get into the pile. So I remember 
going and, and finally being still with Lieutenant Mills and a couple of other guys whom I can't remember and walking down into the site. It was, um, you know, something out of a post-apocalyptic movie. I mean, you just, there were still things on fire everywhere, cars on fire, buildings on fire. I mean, there were, you know, buildings, roaring fire that on any given day would have been a 1076 fifth alarm, you know, and major fire operation. And they were just burning. Um, I remember the ash, you know, being, it was, it was eerie, you know, it was starting to get dark now. And I remember it almost felt like a blizzard, you know, where you're like walking through like, I don't know how many inches deep or, you know, a foot deep of ash and it's still falling from the sky like a snowstorm. And we just kind of were doing <laughs> not much, you know, we didn't, we didn't accomplish a, a whole heck of a lot. I, I don't know what we were expecting, you know, in my mind, like I thought, you know, there'd be people to help, you know, or something to do. Um, it just felt like anyone who was caught in that collapse was killed. And if you weren't, you got out of there pretty unscathed. I mean, there weren't like injuries. There weren't people to help. You couldn't move really any of the debris. It was so heavy. It was either steel and really heavy or it was pulverized into dust. You know, so like it, it really, uh, we felt pretty, um, pretty futile. There wasn't a lot that we could accomplish in those initial stages. And, um, and we were there, I don't know how long, a few hours. And then we, uh, somebody made the call, it's time to go and uh, you're up. So we went back, uh, somehow got back on that same bus, I believe on that same bus. And um, we, we ended up back in Co-op City. And I remember uh, parting ways with Lieutenant Mills in that uh, house watch. I remember him taking a mark in the company journal, like you know, we were here and, and that was it. And um, I was off duty at that point. We were just talking about that wasn't a one day event. So what happened after that? How much time did you end up spending down at the pile? Yeah, so I, I think, right. So the, the thing about 9-11 for a New York City fireman was that it was, 9-11 wasn't one day. It was more like a, a year, you know. It was just this ongoing operation. I mean, the actual fire operation, you know, fire department operations went on for at least a year. So things, things evolved, you know, that next day I was up, Super early, got up. I went home that night. Tried. To, I don't think I slept. I, 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 you know, without instructions, didn't really have any instructions either. I didn't know what to do. I just knew. All right. Well, I'm assigned to ladder nine. I, I better get there. You know. So uh, just got up super early. Went to the firehouse. And uh, when I got there, it was just a scene of um, kind of devastation and confusion. You know. I mean, I'm meeting these some of these guys now for the first time they're like who are you what is going on Nick? what what are you doing here like you know the last thing they want to do at this point is like greet a probe and there's no rigs the rigs are destroyed their mm -hmm. rigs have been heavily damaged um we didn't have rigs for uh, maybe a month weeks you know that day i remember so we get picked up in some sort of a bus um from the firehouse and we get brought down to the site and um that was what went on for uh most of the tours you know we went right after uh the 11th, they went to 24 on, 24 off. It was an A-B chart. And um, so you were, uh, you, we spent a lot of time in the firehouse on duty. And we would go down to the site, you know, sometimes in, in members' personal vehicles. We'd just mm -hmm. get in the back of a pickup truck and all go down. But that second day, uh, Wednesday, the 12th, we uh, got picked up in some sort of bus and um, got dropped off and spent a, a bunch of time down at the site. Um, it was starting to become 
you know, loosely organized at that point. I remember uh, what I believe is the World Financial Center there. I remember having to walk through the lobby there, and there was a broken out window, and there was a portable ladder from this broken out window down into the site. And I remember like climbing down this portable ladder and just being in the pit, you know, and uh, that was, um, you know, it was an intense scene in there. It was just destruction and devastation. And, um, you know, the big thing was the bucket brigades, you know, like you'd, you'd get into like a line of guys and, you know, they're just passing for, you know, a long period of time, you know, just passing a bucket full of debris from one guy to the next and just standing there and just kind of monotonous work and um, just, you know, kind of looking around at all this destruction around you. I do remember being involved in that uh, in that second day on the um, on the 12th, recovering a body. I remember, um, I don't know, based on maybe by smell. I mean, kind of like that's I remember a lot of that, like you'd be in an area like kind of digging and be like, smell something over here. Let's dig over here, you know, and we recovered. It was the only fully intact person. It was uh, it was a civilian um, and we dug him out over the course of uh, an hour or two. And um, you know, he was an office worker. He still had the office attire on. And uh, after that, I think I uh, I got assigned a few days later. I got assigned. They, they set up this um, some sort of task force at a Shea Stadium, and I got detailed to this task force uh, that was running out of Shea Stadium. So it was actually for uh, I don't know how long, but I um, was reporting to Shea Stadium, and it was sort of the muster site, and getting on a bus and getting bussed in to the site with a bunch of guys, you know, new guy, I didn't know any of them and um, just working, you know, 13 hour days or something and um, doing a, a lot of digging and, um, you know, eventually getting, I don't know how administratively, but relieved from that detail, being back in the firehouse at Nine Truck. And um, by that point then, things were starting to come back to normal. You know, I remember then at, at some point we were actually taking in runs. Things were uh, starting to, and so, you know, the, the firehouse was, was functioning as a fire company at that point. Well, thank you for sharing all those details. There's another formative experience I want to talk about early in your career, which is the line of duty death that you were present for. Right. Yeah. So by November, we got our assignments. We got reassigned. They did a, a graduation for us. Um, I remember they combined us with the May class. You know, the previous Proby class, we did a big combined graduation uh, down in Brooklyn. And I, I remember they, they the May class had lost six Probies and, uh, you know, the six seats open um, at our graduation, which was, was pretty heavy. And um, getting assigned to Engine 67 up in Washington Heights. I'm up there. I ended up transferring to a ladder company, uh, Ladder 36, up at Inwood, which is just just a bit north of Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan. And I wasn't there long. And, um, you know, th- things are starting to go back to normal now. You know, we're back to functioning like a, you know, a normal fire department and things are going well. And, you know, I'm, I'm super stoked. I'm now I'm in a truck and I'm like really excited about that. And um, I had been there for, I think, about a month, I think, or maybe yeah, a month or two months at this point. And, you know, it was funny, too, like the, the junior guys were, were pretty, pretty connected. You know, we had a, a lot of junior guys now because guys are getting hired after 9-11. And we had a lot of younger guys starting to come in. And I remember we get a phone call. I'm off duty. And a, and a buddy, Ryan Davin, who's uh, still a good friend, he's like, hey, man, he's like, dude, you know, something really bad just happened, man. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think we just lost Tommy Brick. And I'm like, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? So Tommy's a fireman in 36 truck, um, junior, pretty junior guy around, you know, the same time as me. And I'm like, oh, man, like, so I called the firehouse 
And I mean, this is like ongoing. This is like developing. And I call the firehouse and the officer answers the phone. I'm like, uh, hey, Lou, like, is everything okay? And the guy just says, no. He's like, get to the firehouse right now. And I'm like, okay, got it. So then I'm, I'm driving. Now I know something really bad just happened. So I, I drive down and um, I remember getting to the firehouse and no one's there. The companies are out. The rigs are out. And there's, there's nobody there. They're just still at the scene. And I remember... Uh, there's two guys standing, one of whom was a former member of 36 Truck, Tommy Boyne, I believe his name was, had gone to the fire marshals. And he's standing there, and I could just look, just see the look on his face, and, and I knew that it was bad, you know. And I remember walking up to him. I'm like, hey, man, I'm like, is Tommy, is Tommy gone? And he's like, yeah. And I was just like, you know, I, I literally, I, you know, I, I actually – Tears were coming out of my eyes. Like, I, I started to cry. Like, I was just couldn't believe, you know. And I don't know if it was the compounded effect, you know, after 9-11 and now this. And um, it, it was, you know, in many ways, the Tommy Brick fire, like, that experience was like, it might have been, for me personally, it could have been worse than 9-11. Because now, like, I was pretty... In a, you know, the short time that I knew him, I was pretty connected to the guy. There were there was a lot of detailing going on. I'd gotten to know him pretty well in like, you know, in the two years that I was up there. And uh, I mean, we had just a month earlier, he uh, had a big night, you know, partying that we were out in the bars in uh, White Plains. He got, he stayed at my house, slept, he slept in my bed, you know, a, a couple of, uh, I felt like weeks right before this happened, you know, and it was, um, you know, I, I actually gave, I gave him my room that night and he's at my house and, um, you know, and now, you know, it sold, you know, the particulars of the fire. He, he was, um, it was a, a two-story taxpayer. It was uh, 207th Street and 10th Avenue. And um, it was like a sort of a mattress um, warehouse or refurbishing store on the second floor of a taxpayer. And it was just really, really bad fire. Fire was in a cockloft, heavy, heavy fire. And he just, uh, he got a bit disconnected from the inside team and he, and he didn't make it out. I remember from, from the firehouse uh, going down to the hospital to Columbia Presbyterian on 168 in Broadway. And uh, at that point, you know, I, and I don't even, I don't really, there were a few guys in the firehouse that were starting to trickle in there. And somebody was, I think the mayor had just showed up and, you know, I didn't actually see him, but there was somebody's like, oh, you know, Mike Bloomberg is here. And and then, you know, you know that that's bad, yeah. you know, when the mayor's at the hospital. And uh, at some point, one of the doctors came over, there was a group of us, and he said, hey, like, you guys want to, you want to come see him, you know? And, um, so we did, we went into a room and, um, you know, it was, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty raw, you know, it was pretty tough. And then that, that experience again is, um, in much the same way that 9-11 isn't one day. It was, you know, it was a year. I mean, it's really way beyond, you know, and, um, it was, there's a lot to do when you are in, uh, the honor company, when you lose a guy in your company, in your firehouse. And, um, so, yeah, the early part of my career was, uh, and, and, and you know, after that too, I mean, there were just some tragic fires, you know, in the years after that were, that were, you know, you had Black Sunday about a year later, you know, and I wasn't involved in that, right? But I was, I remember I was on duty for that. I, I think the engine uh, 95, I think, went over to it. And I, again, it was like, the, for those guys, I mean, that was just a horrific fire, you know, and that same day, you know, Rich Clefani down in Brooklyn. I mean, during that period of time, it was just, you know, I think the, overall takeaway was like this job is real you know this job is no joke i mean it is uh it is as real as it gets and um so you know you talk about you know early uh, formative experiences in your career like that 
you really, you got to respect this job because it, it gets real. Having experienced so much loss at the start of your career, including 9-11, why did you choose to stay with the department? Was it ever a question? No, Pat, that was never even a thought. You know, yeah. I mean, it was never a thought. Um, the thought never once entered my mind that, like, maybe maybe this is not the right choice. You know, I mean, it was just, if anything, you know, I think what starts to happen is, like, the more you're involved um, in these types of events, I, I think the more connected you feel. I think the more pride you feel for, you know, the organization and, and the group uh, the group of guys that you're with who, who are involved, who get through these things together. I mean, you never, like, you never forget the connections that you have during those times. So, no. Leaving, leaving wasn't an option. Alternatively, you ended up studying and promoting within the department. So can you talk about that motivation and what you were hoping to achieve? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that story kind of begins with, you know, I, I, at this point, I'm just, I'm young and I'm fired up and I want to get involved in absolutely everything, right? Like I wanted to, I'm in an engine, I want to go to a truck. I'm in a truck. Now I'm like, oh, I, I want to go to rescue. You know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm so young. I don't even know how that works, right? Like, you know, I want to be in sock. I want to get promoted. I wanted to do everything, you know, and, but I also, pretty quickly realize that like, you know, things, nothing moves quickly in the fire department, you know, like these, <laughs> these things don't happen uh, all that fast. So, you know, the idea that like, you know, I'm going to go to SOC is uh, with absolutely no connections to, to SOC or uh, any experience at all or, you know, is, is kind of crazy. Although, you know, if I, if, if I go on a tangent, I, I did actually have, uh, I had one shot at going to sock um and I, I don't know if you want me to go into that i don't know this story here's one that i don't so, know <laughs> uh, you know while i was still at 67 and, and again this 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 situation is unique because again you know you talk about rebuilding after 9-11 right. the special operations command had been decimated right. like they disproportionately lost uh, a heavy they had a heavy toll and so at this time they're they're truly rebuilding sock I had an officer in 67 who had been uh, a squad guy, and he, he I guess he liked me. And he actually at one point said, re, just saw saw that I was this, you know, hungry guy. And he said, hey, man, like my old captain uh, is looking for guys. You know, I, you know, I, I, I talked to him. He's like, uh, if you want, you can go over and, and have an interview. And I literally at this point, I have a year and a half on the, on the job, which is by today's standards right. is just not – feasible. You know, you're not going to sock out of an engine with a year and a half on the fire department. It's just not even feasible. So, but I, I go over and the, and the captain at the time, it was uh, 61. And um, it was a guy named Steve Spall, who's still on the job. He's a battalion chief now. I believe he's down in the ninth battalion. Just saw him. Actually, I was, I was in MPI with, uh, with Steve. Really, really good guy. Super, super, super dedicated. And so I went over and initially we had a great interview and the guy was like, you know, basically said, hey, like, you know, I think you're a good candidate, but uh, you don't have enough time on the job, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm like, totally get it. I, yeah, that makes sense. Like, you know, and he's like, but I'm not going to forget you and I'm going to keep your resume. And a few months later, I, uh, he, he gives me a call, right? And, uh, but I had just literally, the ink is not even dry on my transfer to 36 truck. And he, he calls me like a week after I got transferred and he's like, Hey man, like, you know, I, I, um, turns out I, I need a guy. I was wondering if you're still interested in that. And I was like, Oh man, like I just transferred to which I, I yeah. cap, I don't know what to do. Like I can't do it. You know, like that would just be insane you know after just getting this transfer like I, I can't i can't do it so and i think that was the right call you know and I, and I think being in a truck was good for me and i um 
it, it, it worked all. You know, everything I think worked out. That was out. a respectable decision, and he got it. Yeah, one hundred percent. So at this point now, you know, again, getting back to, I want to get involved in everything. And the one thing that I can control, it's okay, right? Like control the controllable, right? There's one thing I can control. I can study. And I am eligible, you know, based on civil service law, I am eligible to take this lieutenant's exam, right? So I start studying right out of the gate because it's not only is it a way for me to, you know, to get somewhere in, in my career, but it's also I'm really into these books because I'm learning the job. I mean, I'm reading Ladders 3. I'm reading Multiple Dwellings. I'm reading Taxpayers. I'm reading all these, you know, the heart of the meat and potatoes of, of the job. And, uh, and I'm learning. And I think the more you learn, the more confident you get, the more you feel good about it. I mean, when you really know the books, like you know your positions, your, your, your duties, and your tools, like it's a great sense of confidence to get off the rig at a fire and be like, I know where to go. You know, yeah, I got three years on a job, but like at least I know where to go and I know what to carry and I know what to do. You know, I mean, well, <laughs> maybe you don't know what to do, but you know where to go and what to carry. Um, and so, you know, I, I get into it and, you know, it, it, but it wasn't easy, right? At that time, and I think it started to change a little bit. I hope it's I hope it's not still this way for uh, for the younger guys because I know I, I encourage them. I encourage the heck out of them when mm-hmm. when we start talking about studying. But at the time, to be a young guy, I, I mean, not only was I you know inexperienced in terms of time on a job, but I was also just young. So I had yeah, this, like, how come... old were you when you promoted to lieutenant? Uh, so I got promoted at I think it was like a week past my twenty seventh birthday. So I was. You know, I think it was. I think it was August of 2006 is when I got promoted. Mm-hmm. So I like just turned 27, mm-hmm. right? And it was, yeah, it was it was pretty tough, right? The, the study process was tough. I don't want to say it was tough. The study process was tough because I got a lot of resistance, right? There were a lot of like you know salty, more senior guys who were older who you know weren't on that track who who really disapproved, you know, stro- strongly disapproved, and they were not exactly, uh, you know. They were pretty vocal about that, you know. So yeah, in some ways, and I remember years later, I remember a guy, I was just at a promotion party with a, a dude from, that I worked with in 36. And, and I remember, you know, he was like, Jay, it is like, he was like, you know, man, you had some balls, man, you know. And and, and I know he, he wasn't talking about the fire floor. He was talking about the fact that, like, I was a rebellious kid. I just didn't care. You know, these guys were, and sometimes it was, it got pretty rough. And these guys were crushing me. And I, I just didn't care because in my mind, I'm like, that's bad advice. Like you're telling me not to study. That's not good advice. That's you're not helping me out, you know. And you very quickly learn like who's good for you and who's not. Who's trying to help you and who's teaching you and who's showing you a tool and who's, you know, trying to bring you down. And recently, you know, I just very recently in the last couple of weeks, um, we have a, a young guy in uh, in my firehouse. Great kid. I mean, really, really, really squared away kid. And he he pulled me aside. He's like, you know. He's like, hey, uh, I'm starting to do a little reading. He's like, kind of like looking for, you know, a signal like of approval. You know, should I be doing this? You know, he's got maybe two or three years at this point. And I'm like, I stop walking. I'm like, yes, you know, absolutely. This is your career, man. Like, if you're ready to take on that responsibility, you know, and that challenge, like 100%, you know, I got your back. You know, if you need anything. You let me know, you know, we'll sit down and we'll go through ladders three and we'll, you know, figure this out and go to fire tech, go, you know, get yourself onto lieutenantsquestions.com and all that and like do it 100% and don't let anyone give you, you know, any bad advice and deter you from doing what's right for, for you because you can, you know, you can do this. I mean, he's a, he's a good kid and he, he'll be fine. 
So, yeah, so I, I get promoted and um, I'm looking for a challenge, right? And so so the strategy is go to the busiest division. You get assigned, you get you know, you go through FLIPS, which is a five-week uh, course where they teach you how to be an officer. And you get an assignment and basically you get assigned to a division and you cover in that division. Um, you know, there are nine divisions citywide. And at the time, you know, the, the busiest division um, – you know, and I did some research. I'm looking at statistics of, you know, what companies are going to fires. And I'm really super, super dialed in. And uh, at the time, the 15th division appeared to me to be the, in Brooklyn, appeared to be the uh, the busiest division. You know, and that, that covers, you know, uh, East New York and Brownsville and Bed-Stuy and Flatbush and um, some, some really, really busy areas uh, of, of the city in that division. And uh and I was I was fortunate. I had met I had a buddy who <laughs> kind of helped me get to the fifteenth. It was hard to get to at that point, you know. And again, I don't have any family in it. I don't I don't have any you know social connections at this point. So, um, and I, I got there, and it was the best thing that ever happened. It was good. I mean, it was there's some really heavy hitting companies down there. Some really 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 busy trucks and uh, really experienced guys. You know, I'm working in places that you know I had heard of. You know, I was. Uh, in the academy, I had uh, Joe Higgins was my DI. Like, Joe Higgins is from 111 Truck, right? And Joe was like this legendary guy, like mm-hmm. so animated and so well-known and so fired up and aggressive. And, you know, I, I, in, in Brooklyn, 111 Truck was the only truck I had ever heard of, I think, at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. And so here I am, I'm, I'm doing like a vacation in 111 Truck and I'm, I'm young and I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, this is so cool. And, uh, I was having so much fun, you know. It wasn't it wasn't easy. I mean, there were some places that were uh, that were a bit hostile, you know. And I don't even think it was personal, you know. But it was just these places. Some of these guys were just yeah. hostile. And uh, you know, when you're a, a covering officer, that you're you're pretty alone. You know, you don't have a whole lot of of allies when nobody knows you, and you're just this young dude from another totally different area of the city, and you're bouncing through. And um, but you know, some funny stuff too. Like some of the guys, I remember, you know, one of the first. Uh, Places I, I think I did a vacation spot in uh, a really great house. This guy, these guys at uh, two and a quarter and one hundred seven. Right, I'm there. They, they treated me extremely well. So, but but they're also like you know, wow, wow dude, you are young. Like, what is? Who, where did you come from? You know, mm-hmm. and I come in for lunch and I, I sit down and there's a green, a child's green sippy cup with my name, Jason, right on it, like it's a four year old's cup. You know, and I sit down and I'm like. Oh man, like uh, you know what? That's pretty freaking good. That's pretty awesome. They got me, but but they they were awesome to me, and um, yeah. and I think the key to the to the whole experience was uh, making one hundred percent sure and being totally transparent about you know there's, there's a lot I don't know and uh, treating everyone with with complete respect. You know, mm-hmm. and I think this is like you know you step outside of the fire department or anywhere. This is exactly what, what I teach my kids. I you know I have two young boys who were four and six, and it's like you know we talk and I'm like you know. Jay, like the, you know, the, the the key to life is just treat everyone with respect. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that that's what you do, and uh, you know, especially when you know you're back in a firehouse, and um, some of these guys are really experienced guys who know mm-hmm. what they're doing, and I've uh, been to a, a ton of fires, and um, you know, it's okay to to you know pull a guy aside and be like, you know, hey man, you know, I I, I you know. We had a lot of age types in my neighborhood. You know, I don't really know frames. You know, what's uh, what's what's the deal with these buildings? You know, like yeah. what's what's the best way to uh, to do things here? You know, and and I think the guys once you start asking questions like that, like guys are they get it? Like they're they're cool. I mean, they they don't expect they understand. They they know that you don't know. You know, and I think if you if you try to fake it, you know, this idea, you know, the, the fake it till you make it uh, mantra. I think that's a horrible way to go, right? I think that uh, 
you just have to be really transparent and, and ask a lot of questions because everybody everybody's rig is different. They got different setups and different response mm-hmm. areas, and there's so much to learn when you're covering. You're always out of your element. You're always trying to figure things out. You know, so um, I think you just got to be humble and uh, and ask a lot of questions. I love the sippy cup story, and I'm sure there's more we can talk about in terms of challenges promoting young. But were there any advantages you found? To promoting at a young age advantages uh, you know in a job where you know everything you know we're in this sort of like subculture where like seniority is everything and so i think it's much easier for just about anybody in any position any role to walk into a room if you've got 30 years on a job right as opposed to five and uh if there were advantages like <laughs> they're not jumping out at me at this point but at the same time i, I think that you can overcome any of these obstacles by, again, treating people with respect, admitting what you don't know, asking questions. And also, look, I think you have to also be a, a little bit competent, too. Like, you have to be technically competent. Yeah. You have to know the fundamentals and you have to have your stuff together to some degree, right? You have to be somewhat cool, calm, and collected, I think. And, um, and I think you can do that. I think if you have this basic level of competency and, like, if you're not then then you're going to have a problem you know so i think like you got to make sure that you know before you leave your company and you're going to go out and be an officer that you're you know really seeking out your officers and, and senior guys and you know really making sure you're prepped and ready to go and you, you know everything you, you really should probably have worked in a truck you know if you're in an engine you should probably get a, a you know a detail across the floor to to another house and maybe do a year in a truck or something mm-hmm. uh, because there's a lot to know do you have any thoughts you'd like to share regarding how you approach studying and promotions that you think would be valuable to young members listening? I think the approach to studying is that you've got to go all in. You know, at least that was my approach. My approach to pretty much anything I've, I've ever done is just to go all in and, and give yourself plenty of time. It's a massive project, you know, for people outside the department. You know, you, you wouldn't believe how involved the promotional exam process is. I mean, you know, guys will study for thousands of hours per exam, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, two years for a lieutenant's exam. And I, I mean, geez, like the, the current exam, I think it's, it's unusual, but because of, you know, the things that have been going on in the department, it's, I think it's been seven years since they've given a lieutenant's exam, you know, and I know I had guys when I was down, I was a captain in the uh, first division when I was working in an 11 truck. I mean, I had guys that were studying for lieutenant before I left there, I mean, had been studying for a year or so. And now here we are. It's, you know, six going on seven years later and you know, mm-hmm. they're still studying. So I liken every exam to like a master's degree. Like every lieutenant's exam, it's like one master's. Captain, you got two masters in the fire department. Battalion chief, you've got three masters in the fire. You know, by the time you you get to deputy chief, you've got a, a PhD <laughs> in the fire department. And um and it's, it's a good system. It's not a perfect system, um, but it's a good system because you do you get a lot of knowledge out of the books. It's not complete. You know, you, you really have to have real-world field experience coupled with that knowledge that you get out of the book, you know. And, and then, you know, also people skills, you know. I mean, I would say, you know, operationally, you can be great, but but in the firehouse, I mean, most of your, of your issues and, and problems are going to be Right. Personnel. It's going to be interpersonal and it's going to be things that you have to, you know, use those soft skills for mm-hmm. to solve. One of the things I remember about when we first met, you're one of the few people who still leaves a detailed voicemail. <laughs> 
and I remember you always followed up with an email with a phone call. You were like, I don't want to just, you know, leave this to email. So you, you've always prioritized interpersonal relationships That's very the well. Theory of media richness, right? I mean, you know, a, a text and an email yeah. suck and, you know, phone calls a bit better in person is the best. Yes. You know? I mean, you just can't. Um, yeah, you can't. Leave. There's some nuanced messages that just cannot be conveyed in an email. And then how old were you when you promoted to captain and how much time did you have on the job? Because we met when you were a captain. Correct. Yeah. So I was, um, I got promoted to captain in, it was right after the 10 year anniversary of 9-11. It was in September of uh, 2011. I guess I would have been 30, just turned 32. Is it correct that you were one of the youngest captains in FDNY history? You know, Patty, I haven't done the research on this. You know, there's uh, a lot so. of records there in headquarters and I haven't really uh, spent a lot of time going through them. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to the administrators <laughs> to figure out. Obviously, your career is very closely linked to the FDMI's rebuilding process. So really, what are your thoughts on changes and additional training and responsibilities placed on members post 9-11, in your opinion? You know, I mean, there certainly was a rebuilding process after 9-11. But I think, you know, it's, you know, we've gotten some new technologies and you know, a few extra radios and, and certainly a lot of training. I mean, I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, after 9-11, I mean, you know, at a much higher pay grade than me, I mean, there was just a massive amount of grant money that that came down from mm -hmm. the federal government to all, all fire departments and, and police departments all over the nation. And, um, you know, we, we certainly were doing way more training, uh, getting a lot more equipment, you know, new facilities at the Rock and all that. But at the same time, I, I got to be honest with you, the fundamentals of the job really haven't changed. I mean, it's basically the, the same job that I did, was doing in 2001 is we're putting out fires the same way. And uh, I remember, you know, the conversation after 9-11 was like, oh, man, you know, like, you know, we lost all our seniority. Like, the, you know, how are these all these young guys? Oh, this, you know, such and such company, like the senior guy there has got uh, three years. Can you believe it? Like, we're doomed, you know? And I think the cool thing is that, you know, we weren't. Like, the, the, the job got done. And, like, these guys stepped up and the fires went out. And slowly but surely, those guys, those companies where the senior guy had three years, all of a sudden, you know, now they're 20-year guys, you know? And now they're – we've rebuilt. And um, it, what I think is pretty cool – and, and you know, I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, some pretty smart – Leadership. I mean, put some senior officers in places that needed them. And I remember details after 9-11. I remember some guys coming in. I mean, this was in, in, in the very immediate af aftermath. But, you know, senior guys, 10-year-plus guys coming in to fill in in companies and just work in Manhattan and stuff. But I, I think that, like, what was pretty cool is that all those doomsday predictions didn't come true, right? Everybody stepped mm -hmm. up and, and the job got done. And, and here we are 20 years later. And, like, I think we uh, have a pretty robust department. It's a very optimistic perspective. I'm not surprised to hear it from you. So how many years were you with the department when you promoted to battalion chief? So BC was uh, 1230 of 2015. Um, I had 14 years. Again, a little uh, a little light on time, heavy on enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, <I> just, <laughs> I've always enjoyed the challenge. And... It worked. I, I, I think it worked out. I was I was ready. I mean, I've always been so so into the job that you know I, I, I read mm -hmm. you know not only the books but I'm reading and watching and, and involved in uh, projects and 
you know, one of the ways I think you, you were planning on getting into uh, into diamond plate, and I, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the best ways that I've learned my position um, as a chief has been via diamond plate. And we can get a little bit of more, a little bit more into how you know we got started. That's where uh, yeah. you, you and I collided. But uh, yeah. so diamond plate is uh, the department's digital platform, right? It's more or less almost like a an internal social media platform in, in a way where we produce content and in, uh, in the form of training videos, which is funny, right? Because I, I had no background in video whatsoever, and I, and I still mm-hmm. remember getting started. And my first initial project was was a short article, and you came to me and you're like, "Hey, you know." Uh, you know, in his very polite way, you know, you can do video uh, if you want, you know, hint, hint. Right? And uh, I'm like, what, how would I make a video? That's insane. But, yeah. uh, and then you introduced me to all these resources that we have and these incredible professionals, you know, the equipment, the resources that, that we had were just, you know, unimaginable from my standpoint. And off we went. And um, so the operational case study, you know, that idea kind of came from, I think, I think what I realized was that what connects people to people most are, are, are just real world mm-hmm. operations and stories. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I've also learned along the way, I think a bunch of reading, I'm a bit of a nerd, as you know, and uh, some of these social science books that, uh, that I like to read. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the idea that like human beings are like programmed to learn from stories yep. much better than, mm-hmm. you know, you know, arcane technical information, right? Yeah. So like, and in some ways, like our department manuals are, are pretty technical um, and in some cases tough to read. And, but, the operational case study idea, and that was also, uh, we, you know, we didn't really get, you know, it was came from a, a grad school class or, or a project that uh, I was working on. Uh, at some point during a course in a class I was taking, um, I remember getting my hands or getting assigned one of these Harvard uh, Business School case studies and reading through it. And the one I read was, um, it was about Bill Bratton and CompStat and the NYPD and how they were able to use technology to, you know, CompStat was a, was a big story, you know, back in like the 90s. Yeah. And, but that idea of the case study stuck with, stuck with me. And I was like, all right, so we're going to like go out and we're going to find really interesting real world fires and, and emergency operations that happen in the city. Mm-hmm. And we're going to create a case study and we're going to interview the key players and um, go to the scene and take pictures mm-hmm. and get some, some B-roll video and really like dissect this operation, analyze mm-hmm. it, and try to take some lessons learned away from them. And, uh, and so you and I worked on these projects for, uh, yeah. for quite a while. They're still, they're still going. We just, uh, we just shot one on the, uh, the mass shooting in Brooklyn in the right. subway. And, but what I've been able to do is just use these projects to grow myself personally. Yeah. Um, you know, because a lot of these, these things that we cover are kind of like those, you know, low frequency, high consequence events that, um, you know, major fires where something really unusual happens or something like a, a fire in a subway. I mean, we, you know, we did that video on the uh, 110th Street subway fire in the New York City subway. And uh, I think one of the things that, that we realized, like in the course of this project, is like we haven't had a major subway caught fire in decades. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone under the fire department right now who's ever operated at a major train fire in the subway. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the idea, like, we have to capture this mm-hmm. and interview these guys and, like, take away everything we can from this because we don't really even have a whole lot of institutional knowledge about, like, how this goes. So I've really, uh, I've used these to really just grow myself personally. I don't know how you find enough hours in the day to do your job, to have a family life, to study. I think I want to add some more context to that project, which is that it is 
funded by the Department of Homeland Security as a post 9-11 initiative aimed at keeping members operationally ready. And it's unique in its setup and its workflow because members who are full time in the field are contributors to the platform or they were when I was there <laughs> and I left, you know, in 2021. So we had to collaborate to get effective messaging out to the department about training and operations. And that couldn't have been done without your everything that you've talked about so far in this interview. But you did more than just diamond plate. So I want to talk about the West Point counterterrorism leadership program. How did that come about? And what did you gain from that experience? Yeah, West Point was uh, was really cool. That was like most other things, uh, you know, just, it kind of came down to the department orders. And uh, at, again, at this point in my career, I, I mean, I was at this period where I, I just signed up for absolutely everything, like no matter what it was, incident management team or West Point or Naval Postgraduate School or, or whatever it was going to be, I was in, you know, I was all in. And by that point, I think, um, you know, I was starting to get to know people. I think uh, I had had some encounters with Chief Pfeiffer and, you know, I, I guess I, because that, it was it was kind of hard to get into. I, yeah. I do remember it was selective. I had been to, I think I had, my, my resume was, was starting to build a little bit. I, I just finished Baruch. So, uh, yeah, you went to grad school. How did that come about? What did you do? Why did you do it? Yeah. So maybe that, that story begins all the way in the beginning with uh, with MPS, with the Naval Postgraduate School, another major department initiative that comes down to the department order. So I started applying to the uh, Naval Postgraduate School when I'm like a maybe a junior lieutenant. And obviously I get denied. You know, I, I obviously don't get picked for this thing. I'm a junior lieutenant. I don't I don't know anybody. I don't have a whole lot of credentials or experience or, or anything. I'm, I'm certainly not like qualified at this point. But, you know, I, I think I applied twice. And then I decide, like... And this was for the master's program, because they have a master's, they have a leadership development or an executive leadership course. Exactly. Yeah. So at this point, the department's sending, uh, sending people out for... Uh, it's uh, a two-year mm-hmm. sort of executive master's degree uh, out at, at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. You go out uh, once a quarter for two weeks for an mm-hmm. in-residence period. Um, and in the end, you end up with a, uh, a master's degree in security studies. Awesome, awesome program. And so, I, you know, I'm applying and I'm, I'm not getting accepted. And, and, you know, in much the same way that I wanted to, you know, be in a truck and be in sock and be in, you know, be an astronaut uh, at this point, I, you know, I'm like, I'm going to take control of my own destiny. And I'm, I, you know, they're not going to let me in. I'm doing this myself. So I, I go out and I start researching grad school programs and uh, I, I find my way to uh, Baruch, um, City of New York, you know, City University of New York. Which is where I went to college. CUNY, that's right. We have that in common. That's <laughs> right. Alma mater. Um, and I, I figure out that that's the right program for me. And I, uh, I apply, I get accepted, I go, and um, and it was amazing. It was really cool. And in many ways, I, I thought it was, what I thought it was cool was that, you know, it was outside the fire department. I think it was the best thing for me because mm. uh, I like the idea of getting ideas from outside the fire department. Because, you know, I think, you know, sometimes we start to, you know, bounce the same ideas off each other for long enough and we start, you know, you know, believe each other's BS, you know, a little bit. So I think it's good to get, you know, a diversity of opinions and ideas from outside the job and uh, really incorporate some of that stuff. And, yeah. uh, and that's actually, that's exactly what, what Jay Bresler has done at MPI, right? Mm-hmm. He's got these incredible, these incredible instructors from Yale Medical School, right? Dr. Randy Morgan. He's got Jonathan Faber, Fader from uh, Sports Psychologist. I mean, yeah. some just unbelievable people. And, and the concept that he's bringing in ideas from outside the fire service, right? And trying to like glean what we can from these, these renowned experts from, mm-hmm. from outside the job. 
And so, yeah, so I spend uh, about three years at Baruch. Um, fantastic course. I mean, just some incredible, really smart people, smart professors. I finished Baruch, uh, I think, at the end of 2011. And so now I am, uh, yeah, so you asked about the, the West Point class. I sign up for the West Point class. And now I have, you know, now I have, I have maybe a little bit more credentials. I'm a captain, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm still fired up looking for opportunities. So the West Point class was amazing. So it was, I would describe it as a graduate level class in, in terrorism. And just, you know, it was a lot of reading and, and I did it. I did all the reading. I was, I was still in, you know, grad school mode and then really fired up. And uh, so the professor uh, was a guy named Reed Sawyer, who uh, was a lieutenant colonel um, from the Army, um, who I think was stationed uh, at West Point at that point. And, uh, you know, I think had been in Delta Force, was like a really super charismatic guy, kind of like a badass, like a really good, good dude. And, um, so I got a lot out of that. And what I what I think I realized after that experience is that I think at that point, I think Chief Pfeiffer was kind of using that as a vetting process mm-hmm. for NPS. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I remember having a conversation towards the end of West Point with Chief Pfeiffer about uh, about NPS. And, um, and it was kind of like a, a signal like, you know, OK, like you should apply. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, boy, this is now here. Here we go. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go now. And uh, so I apply and, and I get in. And so here I am. I'm in NPS. And I, and I think this is part of the part of the story where it's part of the story where I get to sort of be honest and, and talk about, you know, what it's like to struggle a little bit. Yeah. So, so far, everything you've done, you, every goal you've set, you've achieved. You know, I'm, I'm living a charmed life, right, at this point. And, um, and now all of a sudden, you know, the world is, is starting to get real and things, you know, life's starting to get real. And um, so I'm, I'm at MPS and I guess I'm at a point now where, you know, I think what, what they tell you at the beginning is that you need to have 100% support when you're going to go through this program mm-hmm. from not only your job, you know, because this is, there are people from all over the country who, who are, you know, in this program. You're in a cohort of 32 people. Mm-hmm. And these people are all legit. I mean, absolutely as legit as it gets. Really smart people, you know, Ivy League educated, you know, master's degrees already who are functioning in some cases at, you know, chief executives of their agencies or something. Or, you know, not all of them. They're, you know, many of them are mid-level people, but there are some absolutely really legit, you know, some former military people. It's a civilian program, but many of these people have been in the military. Right. And, I mean, smart, really good people. And I think what they what they're telling you is that you have to have one hundred percent support, uh, not only from your job, but but also at home. You know, mm-hmm. your family and your personal life. And if I can be honest, you know, here I am. I'm I'm halfway through this program, and um, you know, I, I'm married, and and we just had our our first son. Uh, we're living in Long Island City, Queens, and um, and if I'm being truthful, I, I'm now struggling in in my marriage. And we we just had a baby. Uh, there was some question about whether he was going to be born um, during one of the in residences, and and it's it's getting pretty tough at home. And um, I'm at a point now with the anxiety I'm feeling. You know, I never felt this way before. You know, I I don't know. You know, the first grad school program I went through was, you know, I mean, I don't want to say it was a breeze, but it was something that I was I was able to do. And, you know, now this now I'm struggling and I'm feeling anxiety that I just have never felt and I just don't know how to deal with. 
and ultimately it breaks me. I mean, it, it breaks me. And I, I remember where I, you know, I remember being in, I was actually detailed to headquarters at this point. I was working for Chief Sud- Sudnik as the Ops XO. Right. And um, I filled in for uh, Mike Barville's when he got promoted for a brief period of time there. And um, I uh, remember sitting there, I'm on the seventh floor, and I'm like just feeling this crushing anxiety. And uh, I broke, I made the call, I called, the, and, and it was it was actually sad how easy it was to get out of. I just made one phone call to uh, a guy, a program director there at MPS, and he was like, yeah, no, no big deal, you know, we'll just, uh, you know, you can come back, we'll put you on hold, or suspend your status, and, you know, you're not out of the program, you can always come back, and, and I'm just like, I'm feeling really bad about myself. You know, this to me is like a, a failure. I, I screwed this up, like I failed. At this point too now, like, you know, I had to have a, a tough conversation with Chief Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, I get a phone call from a guy who's a chief on our job. And it's a guy whom I respect a lot. And he calls him and he's like, you know, what happened? You know, like you squandered an opportunity and you, you know, potentially took a spot from someone else. You know, I'm like, wow, damn, that hurt. That hurt, you know, and I'm like, it was tough. Um, and if I can fast forward a little bit too, uh, I wind up, getting divorced and, it, and it's like a really, really, really difficult thing, you know, and, uh, and she's an awesome person, right? And like, we're just not compatible for each other. And uh, in the end, like, this is a difficult experience. And so one of the things I, I wanted to, to note, you know, is that I hope there's someone out here that, that can gain from this. But, you know, at this point now, I'm, I'm again, crushing as I, I reach out to the FDNY's counseling service unit. And uh, what an amazing resource and uh, group of people they have there. I get connected to a guy who was actually a uniformed guy who um, had worked in the same firehouse as me. And, you know, it was an unusual, most of the people there are civilians, right? And they're, I mean, mm-hmm. highly trained professionals who are trained social workers and, and therapists and so forth. And uh, this guy happened to be, I'm probably going to butcher the clinical definition, you know, licensed clinical social worker or something before he got on the job. You know, all I needed, I just needed somebody to, to support me, you know. Yeah. And I was getting a lot of, you know, I had a lot of friends in the fire department as well, guys who were really supportive, um, who had been through similar experiences and we got divorced. But, uh, you know, they were great at the uh, at the counseling unit. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, hopefully, if not that I can, I can just, I can put that out there to sort of destigmatize right. that resource because I think a lot of people are reluctant to reach out for help. Uh, and sometimes it's, you just need someone to talk to. Somebody who's going to uh, who's going to support you and, uh, and walk you through it, and uh, that was really cool. The story ends, you know, with, with regard to uh, MPS and, and the the people I let down. You know, it, it turns out that the chief I mentioned, um, we've gone on to have a great relationship. I mean, I got you know back involved with a bunch of projects, and um, I remember you know one of the projects I got back, and when I when I sort of got re-engaged with him, I got, uh, you know, I'm working on a bulletin that I'm I'm trying to get published. It was uh, vacant buildings. And I uh, went a meeting with with Chief Richardson and I present this bulletin to Chief Richardson. And he's like, all right, great. He's like, well, uh, I'm going to connect you with, uh, you know, Chief so-and-so. He's my, he's my bulletin czar now. He's going to, he's going to take it from here. You know, and I'm like, oh man, he's he's not going to, this bulletin's going in the garbage. It's going in the garbage. You know, it's not going to happen. And, uh, and to be fair, he was super, super supportive and really helped out. And, and we had, you know, we talked a little bit about at some point about what had gone on, uh, right. you know, in my life at that point. And, mm-hmm. um, and he, he was super, uh, apologetic and, and, and understanding and supportive. And, um, 
And I think that ties in, you know. <laughs> well, we're about to go into MPI. And honestly, the leadership under fire mantra is to humanize the narrative. So I appreciate your candor and your honesty about mixing your personal and professional life here. I don't think that there's anything wrong with admitting that you prioritized your marriage instead of the NPS degree at that point in time, regardless of the outcome. I think that's actually a very respectable decision. So, and because we share very similar stories in that, like I left my job as a reporter because my marriage was on thin ice, you know, and, and took a part-time job with the FDNY thinking that I was going to end up having a family. And then, you know, just a couple years before you, I ended up getting divorced. So those are hard conversations to have, especially as somebody who has high standards for themselves. You know, you don't sign up for things thinking you're going to fail, but it's not a failure. And I, I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have on the podcast. And now we're going to get to the Mental Performance Initiative. Can you share your thoughts on MPI? Yeah, I went in, uh, in 2020. That was, um, that was the pandemic year. And um, we were lucky enough to be in, in person. So MPI, it, it was a really cool course. Again, and I think the thing I liked about it most was was the outsiders, the you know Dr. Andy Morgan and the Jonathan Faders who come in and, and they bring knowledge from outside the institution that we can now institutionalize and, and and incorporate into our own practices. And I think the you know the the premise of the course when you're in a high stress situation, you're going to experience some physiological and psychological effects that are going to degrade your performance. You know that are going to be debilitating to the point where they're going to they're going to prevent you from performing optimally. And and I think that like the idea that anyone would even dispute that is is to me just crazy. I mean, if you know if you've ever been to a fire or been in any sort of high pressure situation, like we know you feel your your palms are getting mm-hmm. sweaty. You know we've all experienced tunnel vision and auditory exclusion and all these things. And uh, you know it was funny. I think. The, the best way, the best story to to describe this, um, to put this in concrete terms, I, I think I was, we were talking, uh, I wanted to tell a story that's not even a fire department story. It was uh, it was a backcountry skiing story. Right. So, as, you, as you know. So, you know, one of the little sidebars, you know, I've been throughout my life also, I've gotten, um, I'm, I'm a big skier, been, you know, skiing a long time since I was a kid. And uh, in the last several years, gotten a little bit more into like the backcountry scene, you know, and um so a few years ago, I'm out with uh, a really, really one of my closest friends, guy Brian Larkin. He's on the job. He's, yep. uh, he's a battalion chief. He's in Marine Battalion. Uh, Former know. Diamond Plate contributor. Sure is. Sure is. You know. <laughs> and uh, so we're up. And so long story short, we're, we're hiking into Tucker. Now, Tucker means ravine. You know, it's up in the White Mountains up okay. in uh, New Hampshire. It's some pretty, for the East Coast, it's some pretty legit gnarly terrain. I mean, it's, it's really, really serious terrain. Definitely some high consequence terrain in there, and so with the the idea is to you hike in, you know, with your skis, and then you're going to climb Tuckerman's Ravine, um, and you're going to ski down it. And uh, at this point, I, I I had been up there several times. I'm familiar with the terrain. I'd already skied it successfully, you know, a year or two previously. So it's not like my first time doing this. I'm with Brian, and we're, we're just looking to go out and have a good day. And uh, Bad weather day. We're going in. It's ra- it's cl- it's rainy. It's cloudy. It wasn't ideal. It, it was it was a shit day. We, were, we probably shouldn't have been, but it's on the calendar. And 
So we're hiking in. It's a three mile hike in or something, which is, but it's, you know, it's a lot of elevation gain. So, you know, it's a, it's a long hike. It's a few hours that we're hiking in. And now we're getting into close, we're on a Tuckerman Ravine Trail close to the ravine. And, you know, we got some, you know, you got some weight on you. It's maybe 40 or 45 pounds. I got my, you know, a backpack mm-hmm. with my skis on an A-frame, you know, like kind of, you know, boots clicked in and all that and, you know, you know jackets. And you, got, you need a lot of gear up there. It's the weather and uh all of a sudden, we're on this trail, so not the point is not not super mobile, you know. And all of a sudden, I hear this rumbling, right? Like Brian hears it first, and he's like, "Dude, he's like, dude, what the hell is that?" And I'm like, you know, I'm like oblivious, you know. I'm just walking, we're having a conversation, we've been talking for hours, and we both stop, we tense up, mm-hmm. and like I hear it sounds like thunder, right? And over the course of like thirty to forty five seconds, this thunder turns into like an earthquake, right? And like. You know, but we're also, we can't see what's happening because it's so misty and so cloudy. Visibility is like only a few feet. It's really, really bad. And this noise becomes outrageous. I mean, it is like an absolute earthquake. And, you know, Brian and I are both like, I'm thinking avalanche, right? Because everything you talk about up there is like, you know, I'm not watching avalanche center reports. And like, you're every, I'm thinking avalanche, you know, and I'm now I'm like losing sort of, you know, I'm, this is where, you know, MBI comes in where I'm like, things are breaking down. Like, yeah. I'm not responding, you know, at my best anymore, right? And so I'm looking, there's a boulder there, and I'm looking at this this boulder, and I'm like, I want to make a move in that direction, mm-hmm. right? But I'm like, oh, man, like, whatever this is, I think it's, it's just a big boulder. I think it's going to come over top, this boulder, or push the boulder. That's going to crush me. So I look the other direction, and there's kind of like a short sort of like a cliff on the other side of me on the on the left if i'm you know if you're looking up the the trail on the left there's like a i'm actually i'm i'm considering jumping off this cliff i mean i'm like it's that but mm-hmm. i'm yeah, i can't see how deep it goes i can't see what's on the other side of that but it's a thought I, but you know you talk about this indecision like i kind of i take a step in one direction oh, a step another direction i'm i'm completely paralyzed now i don't know what to do there're no good options i'm expecting you know some avalanche is coming and finally, I, you know, I make this in my mind, I just make this decision. I just want to see it. So I stop and I just look up and what I end up seeing, it looks like a, a brown, imagine like at the, at the beach, like a wave crashing on the shore, churning, mm. and, but it's brown. I'm expecting to see white. You know, you talk about the mental models, right? Like yeah. you know, we talk about an MPI, like, and it's not what I'm expecting. It's, it's brown. So it's like, I realize it's, it's rock. It's, it's a rock slide. And it, I mean, it is way too close for comfort, and it's just behind this tree line right in front of us, and and I see this boulder, this massive boulder, bounce into the air, and it's spinning super fast, and then that thing just drops behind a tree, and I see the end of this like brown wave crashing, and I'm at, at this point, and it stops, and I'm like, I am trembling, like my hands are trembling, mm-hmm. my palms are sweaty. I am speechless. I like every physiological effect that they talk about, you know, auditory exclusion, the mm-hmm. tunnel vision, like the indecision. I mean, I'm a deer in headlights and I'm just, I'm useless. And I, I look at Brian and he looks at me and I'm like, dude, let's get the hell out of here. You know? And he, and you, this is, this is kind of a funny part of the story because it's like how the communication breaks down. He's like, what? Like, you want to keep going? <laughs> and I'm like, no, dude, right. no, let's get the hell out of here. He's like, yeah, 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 like totally. Like, wait, 
wait, which direction? Like, yeah. And we're like absolutely fumbling over our words, yeah. indecisive, paralyzed, you know? We get our, our, our shit together finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. We get out of there, you know, and um, and we go down and it's fine, you know, we're talking. And uh, another interesting part of the, like the psychology of it was uh, and we we're talking to Brian and we just, you know, we rehashed this conversation recently. I remember again, you know, you talk about the uh, the denial thing. I remember during this time, like when I'm thinking this through mm-hmm. at this moment, I'm in denial. Like I'm thinking like this is it's not going to it's not going to this is not going to hit us. It's not going to happen. It's not. Brian is a few feet away from me. He's like. Dude, I thought we were absolutely done, absolutely mm-hmm. dead. We were, we were about to die. Like, there's no way we were coming out of there. Mm-hmm. And like, just a different psychology, how people's different people's brains kind of yeah. process things, you know. Um, but ever everything, I mean, we're at this point now. So if you can like imagine yourself in like an operational setting, I'm a believer. You don't have to sell this to me. I've experienced all of these physiological effects to a degree. Like, I totally get that. You know, it doesn't happen frequently. Certainly at a, at a fire department operation where you're where you're put in, in a stress, you know, and, and it, it, I, I don't know whether to call that a near-death experience, but once you get to that point, you know, it's certainly, you know, guys on this job uh, certainly find themselves in positions where it gets that bad, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I think what, what Jay Bresler and his team are trying to do is, like, teach some skills and some coping skills and some ways of overcoming those situations and even, even lower-level situations, just your typical fire, you know, mm-hmm. like, just keeping yourself cool, calm, and collected at a, at a typical all-hands fire, you know, all the way up to that really cataclysmic event. I don't know. I don't know if I walked away from MPI with the right... Uh... No, you absolutely did. I And you know what? You, um, you had shared with me offline that that situation in New Hampshire was probably one of the most scared times of your life, which speaks volumes to what was going on. And it's funny that you keep going back to saying that you personally experienced denial in these times, because I know you to be probably one of the most prepared people. You've talked about, you know, mentally rehearsing things, writing mission statements, like revising them. I just see you as somebody who's always trying to prepare for uncertainty. And here you still find yourself in these situations. So it's great that you you still continue to try to perfect that that preparedness. That That is, uh, I think, 100% accurate. I think if there's any... Um... Any takeaway from MPI? I mean, you know, right, like part of the solution, you know, in terms of, of being ready for, you know, combating these uh, physiological effects uh, is certainly there are some some tricks of the trade, I guess you, you could say. But I think what's even more important than that is, is preparation. And that's that's like training. Um, that's what we do in, in the fire department. You know, you talk about stress inoculation and the idea that like we can prepare for these uh high stress environments by making training really realistic and really, really difficult and having an imagination, like being able to imagine, you know, or if at least not imagining, being able to take like past real world experiences and incorporating those mm-hmm. situations into into training, which is, you know, you know, something that as an institution, we certainly do, you know, we train that way. But I think it's also like, I think it's incumbent on all individuals to like to train on their own, like whether it's, you know, mentally preparing, you know, imagining scenarios yeah. and like doing that on your own in the firehouse. Um, for my own position, you know, you talk about like, well, how do you, you know, what do you do um, individually as a, as a battalion chief? Like I've actually created my own checklists, you know, mm-hmm. based on a lot of them are based on things that I've um, learned in these diamond plate operational case studies, these yeah. projects that I've worked on individually. I've been lucky enough to have like, you know, gain from the experience of others. And uh, what is preparation, right? So, like, these are not things that you're going to figure out 
on the scene of a fire, like as it's happening. Like if you think you're going to wing that and figure it out, like the day it happens, it's not going to go well, uh, especially in these high stress. Imagine, you know, during a, a rock slide, trying to uh, myself trying to respond to a mayday, like when I was in that state. Uh, what I think I've learned most from MPI is like you can trill, you can you can train, you can be technically competent, uh, you can know your job, but there's a whole second component where like you can be awesome in training, but like under stress on game day when things are, are really bad and things are not going well, can you perform mentally? Mm-hmm. You know, and do that do those same evolutions under real world real world stress. Mm-hmm. So far, we haven't talked very much about some of your operational experience, but you keep alluding to learning through storytelling, talking to others, these operational case studies, and working on Diamond Plate and some other special projects within the department. In 2021, you became the editor-in-chief of WNYF Magazine, which stands for with New York Firefighters, and it's the magazine that's been publishing since 1940. It's the department's official training publication. So what else would you like listeners to know about WNYF? Yeah, I mean, WNYF was, uh, first of all, incredible honor. Um, if I could if I could give somebody a shout out, it's, uh, it's, it's probably you, Patty, right? Um, I don't know if you're going to thank me or blame me now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive amount of work, for sure. Um, but it's, it's an incredible honor, you know, to think that I remember when I, when I first got to the firehouse, um, these things, you know, these magazines laying all over the firehouse, and, and I'm at a point where I'm like really, really hungry to consume absolutely anything I can about mm-hmm. the fire service. And I remember as a young firefighter reading this magazine, and this, I mean, there was something really special about it. I mean, WMYF was, you know, in a department that's steeped in history and tradition. There was something about WMYF, I mean, it goes back to 1940. Mm-hmm. Some of the, um, just legends of this job have written articles in WMIF. I mean, you go back and you look at the names of the authors and, um, you know, sometimes you're in a firehouse and you, 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 shell, you pick one off the shelf from the, you know, the 70s or the 80s and you'll see an article either written by an author you know or a story about someone you know uh, who is, you know, like a 35-year senior guy or something and you'll see a picture of him when he was, he had 10 years in a job and he, you know, did some awesome, awesome rescue or did something crazy or did something, you know, like look at it and go like, wow, like that guy was a stud back in the day, you know, and now look at him, he's an old guy. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, well, but, but to your point, there is a wealth of knowledge in WNYF. Yeah. So the, the thing with WNYF is that I, I think the, uh, the strategy is, you know, like, you know, like anything else, like I, I told, you know, I tell my son, like, treat the institution of WMIF with respect, you know, like really have a, a deep respect for this magazine and, and the job that I'm doing um, right now. And just, you know, not try to reinvent the wheel and make wholesale changes to this thing. Like, just keep going with, with the bread and butter, which for me, uh, the strategy is just fire operations, telling stories about fires that people can learn from um, taking away lessons learned from guys who have had experiences or, you know, people who have had experiences at, at fires. Um, and that's, that's if you look at the index of uh, WMIF, I mean, just the, the current magazine that's about to come out, I mean, the dominant theme in this issue is the Springfield Boulevard roof collapse, uh, which was a, a fire operation in, uh, in Queens about a year ago, a little over a year ago, that um, we've actually now covered and documented really well between 
Diamond Plate, um, the operational case studies, the magazine, and, and the FDNY's podcast, um, mm-hmm. we've really captured, I think, a lot. Of, and I think, to me, it was so important to, I think we have five articles in WMIF, like somehow related to the Springfield okay. Boulevard roof collapse in this issue coming up. And, and the reason why is that, you know, in the past, in you know, in the history of this department, I mean, you read, you know, case study after case study of these horrific, tragic, you know, wall bounds, Atlantic Avenue, 23rd Street fire, like, and they, they generally end in tragedy. And this was an example. It's, it's probably not that well known. And had we not covered this, you know, as a department, would probably no one would know about mm-hmm. this. But it, it was a uh, what, what Jay Bresler would call a green slide, you know, as opposed to a red slide, yeah. where this went as exceptionally well as an operation can go. If, if you know, if you're going to have a roof collapse and a member trapped, this is exactly how you wanted it to go down because the guys there just, they executed flawlessly. They were ready to go. Uh, I think in you know one of the articles, I refer to them as a constellation of stars because these guys were just on it. You know, um, In fact, the incident commander, the battalion chief, uh, was a good friend of mine, a uh, guy I worked with in, in Engine 332 in Brooklyn, uh, Chris Paicelli, just nailed it. I mean, as far as managing a mayday, like he, the way he operated, that's the way I hope to God that I can I can operate if it if it were ever to happen to me and and and, and everyone else there exactly the same way these guys the guys from Sock, uh, Freddie Hill and Rescue Four, um, Darren Harsh who just won the Pete Gancy Medal, okay. formerly known as the uh, the Gordon Bennett Medal. Mm-hmm. That's that's the highest medal uh, in the New York City Fire Department, and um, it all came out of this operation. And the, these guys they they cut out. Uh, it was Lieutenant Steve Schumann. Who was trapped under the, under the roof from engine 311, and um, he is buried in, in a really really bad way. And these guys cut him out in 14 minutes and had him out uh, on a stretcher on the way to the hospital. And uh, and Steve Schumann is doing okay. I mean, he's got some really really severe injuries, but he's doing he's doing okay. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to uh, to document that in WMAF and get all the lessons learned that we could from from a green slide from something that. Went well. Yeah, that's what we did on Diamond Play too. It was reinforcing training through successful operations, right? Is there anything else you want to share about the process and methodology of putting together WNYF? Because I think there's value in people understanding how much thought, strategy, and you know, collaboration goes on for this publication. Uh, yeah, I mean, the key is the, is the authors. Um, you know, we've got again. I mean, just some exceptionally talented authors. Um, people in their you know 30s and 40s now, right? Because we're we're a, a, about seniority, right? So usually we look at uh, mm-hmm. you know 25, 30, 35, 40 years super mm-hmm. senior. I mean, even myself at 21 years, I, I don't I don't feel like a senior guy. You know, I, I just don't. I'm, mm-hmm. I still am like I'm kind of anchored to this uh, you know the, the the junior man sort of mindset. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the young, I mean, we just had uh, a guy, Matt Quinn, who's a Captain Matt Quinn, one of the most incredibly bright guys that we have. You know him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, you know, chemical engineering degree from the yeah. University of Pennsylvania. I mean, just absolutely, when you taught him, and what a smart, nice guy, right? Did this analysis of the radio transmissions, not only from the Springfield Boulevard roof collapse, but also many other fires. and was able to examine like you know some some trends mm-hmm. regarding stepped on radio transmissions and radio discipline and how he can graphically display on a graph like what good radio discipline looks like and you know what the impact is and some takeaways and um, so he's that article will be in this edition as well that's one of the five articles on the, on the, on the collapse 
Um, so we have people like that, you know, who are just bringing a lot to the table, you mm -hmm. know, for WMIF and some awesome, uh, some young, young authors. Um, last issue we had, this is really, really atypical, but we had uh, a two-year firefighter, uh, Julianne Forsyth, wrote an article for uh, WMIF on the uh, outdoor dining structures. Now, mm -hmm. typically, you, you wouldn't see an author with, with two years, and but she just nailed the topic. Like, this is something that was, it was a new COVID-era policy, right? There were these basically like wooden shacks that they've built all over the city in front of restaurants all over the five boroughs, uh, particularly in Manhattan. And they, they honestly create operational issues for the fire department right. in terms of rig placement and you know, hose line placement and, you know, there's there's some stuff there to look at. And she just nailed the topic, you know, when she came to me and I was like, definitely, let's do this, you know, and uh, we got it done. And um, so. I think one of the most challenging pieces that you were able to publish was on civil unrest. Correct. I yeah. mean, you really do tackle some really complex topics in the publication. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the issue. Uh, yeah. And, and Jay Bresler wrote that article. Right. It got political, you know, um, but it was also critical because it's it's a topic. Once again, you know, you know, it's almost analogous to the subway fire where we haven't had one in decades. Mm -hmm. And like we don't we don't do civil unrest all the time, you know, and there's some real operational challenges there and, and a lot of risk mm -hmm. for the fire service. And um you know, I, I thought one of the points he made was uh, that I loved, I thought was just his breakthrough idea that, that he had for that particular article. And I like, and I don't think he had it like prominently. And I kind of was like, Jay, though, this is, this is, we got to move this up, like in terms of like, you know, how we, we present the breakthrough idea there was uh, just maintaining the moral high ground, you know, yeah. at, at these operations of civil unrest. I mean, you could have uh, people who are doing, you know, unsavory things who are throwing yeah. bottles and, lighting things on fire and you know and next thing you know two seconds later that guy turns into a patient well you got to treat him now you've got to help him you know and that's that's what we do is as far as we maintain the moral high ground at, at all times um, so I thought that that was a pretty cool takeaway from his article I think overall the publication though lends to operational readiness moral obligation to you members loved ones residents visitors of New York City so that's excellent all right, we're running out on time here, so I do want to get to a rapid-fire Q&A with you, if that's okay. Good to go. Okay. Favorite book? All right, so I think we discussed <laughs> this. You know, I, I, uh, I, I can't narrow it down, but I will say, you know, I, again, uh, the nerd in the, the, you know, I, I think uh, anything by uh, Nassim Taleb, you know, I, I love those books because he's, he's uh, you know, got a finance background. I was... Okay, I'm kind of interested in personal finance and like a lot of his ideas are some pretty big ideas that go way beyond finance, like, but they're sort of based on like mathematical concepts. And uh, so I kind of like that. Um, I recently got uh, Robert Sapolsky from mm -hmm. the MPI course. Uh, that, that book recommendation came from uh, Dr. Andy Morgan, um, who's a professor at Yale Medical School, and he recommended a book called uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Yeah. It's, it's about... It's basically about how stress affects the body. Mm -hmm. Pretty, pretty sciencey. It's pretty. Uh, it's it's a dense read. It's no joke, but it's uh, it's good. And, and yeah, I think the the conclusion is stress is killing us. Anything else? Let's see. Um, anything by Robert Schiller mm -hmm. uh, on on you know on finance. Um, anything by Michael Lewis, mm -hmm. right? To get a little outside of the the sciencey dorky stuff. Like Michael Lewis is just a great author, right? Like. Liar's Poker, Moneyball. Yeah. Moneyball might be one of the best books. 
uh, ever, right? God. Uh, I think that's enough homework in the book area. How about favorite movie documentary about performance? So I'm gonna I'm gonna get into two, and they're both in the same genre. So um, so the uh, the first one I think I would I would watch them in a progression. If you're not into this, if you haven't gone this route yet, uh, Free Solo, which mm-hmm. is about Alex Honnold, the climber, just wild, right? Just next level wild. And if you want to go Free Solo on steroids, you watch The Alpinist, yeah. which is about is it Mark LeClaire is, yes. the, is the guy's name and. You know, he kind of, I think they even interview Honold in, in, the, yes. in the documentary. And Honold is basically like, dude, this guy's crazy. <laughs> He's crazy. Like, um, but I think it's on, it's on performance because what these guys are doing, I mean, yeah. they're, it's the rock climbing movies in the case of, of Leclerc. He's, he's doing more ice climbing and like talk about performing under stress. Like every single move they make is as high consequence as it gets. Mm-hmm. They're, they're climbing without ropes. They're ice climbing without ropes. And the you know if if you fall the uh, game is over and um, th- it doesn't get any more high consequence. So how do you operate in that environment you know psychologically and, and overcome the physiological effects of, of stress in that environment? I think I think the conclusion is uh, with Honold. I think uh, the scientist in the movie says like he he doesn't feel fear right. right. Like, I just think he doesn't have like an amygdala or something. Yeah, like, it's also like Dean Karnazes, the ultra runner, doesn't build up lactic acid. Incredible. He can run 200 miles and not get tired. Wild. Like, yeah. Yeah. Fre- freak of nature. Mm-hmm. But The Alpinist was, I think, the movie that I named my favorite at the end of 2021. So I agree with you there. There you go. <laughs> Most respected or liked leader from any time in history. All right. History's big. Um, and I, I want to bring it back to the uh, to the job. And um, and I, I think I can, I can get away with this uh, with not being an ass kisser because he just retired but i i gotta say tom richardson um during the course of my career he um you know and i mostly got to work with him in a more administrative capacity mm-hmm. on like a whole bunch of you know projects so throughout the whole process when i was involved in diamond plate and wmif like he's been like involved in a lot of the things uh, bulletins the, the the vacant buildings uh, bulletin uh was incredibly supportive but i, I think i could summarize why in, in a pretty short anecdote you know we anecdote we just um we get a meeting with uh, Chief Richardson. It's a diamond plate meeting. Uh, he's the chief of ops at this point. We're up on the seventh floor in a conference room. And um, he, he had actually called us in and wanted to just, you know, he just wanted to get briefed on what, what was up. And uh, he starts the meeting with like, hey, guys, first, always a gentleman, just always super friendly. And, and he comes in. And he's like, hey, guys, look, I just want you to know the reason you're here. We're all here. Like I dragged you down to headquarters is like is because I care. Like, I, I care about, about you. I care about what you're doing. I care about this job. I care about, you know, making this project as, as good as it can be. And I just, I want to know what's going on. And, and I want to support you guys in any way I can. You know, if there's anything you need, I'm here. You know, I got you. And, uh, and that was just, that was his attitude. Uh, I mean, at all times, you know, and, and everything he did. And you can see. And uh, I guess it's a good time to plug the article that, <laughs> that you authored in well, this. Uh, full disclosure i did not know that that was going to be your answer to this question and yeah we can plug the article now <laughs> you certainly can yeah so you authored an article in this upcoming issue yeah. of wmyf on uh, on his career uh where you you interviewed him extensively and um he had he had a lot of cool stuff to say yeah i've been working with him for almost as long as i've known you and he was the chief of the fire academy and then the chief of training and then the chief of operations and always the way you just described him just very humble 
but professional and, um, you know, very supportive through all the special projects that we were involved in. I remember the meeting you're talking about and the whole team out of respect showed up in your classes. We were all very prepared to Super walk in the room. Away. Yeah, just out of respect. And he came in and just was so wonderful and open and trusting, which is huge, you know. Um, huge. So if anybody is interested in learning more about him, his career and any lessons that he wanted to impart, the article is going to be out soon in WNYF. 100%. Um, okay, so last two questions. Uh, favorite genre of music or a song that you enjoy the most? So I'm like a punk rock kid. I, I knew uh, that, and I wanted you to go on record saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some pretty, uh, some pretty uh, you know, unusual bands that no one's heard of, but... Uh, you know, like the you know, the street dogs, or but even going back like Rancid and stuff in the '90s, and uh, you know the the Dropkick Murphys and stuff are cool. And uh, went to a bunch of shows when I was a kid, you know, punk shows and stuff. And um, yeah, so that that's always fun. You're getting into the mosh pit, having some fun. Oh my fun. god! All right, and last question: go to quote or mantra. I, you know, I thought a bit about this. I you know, I like this. There's one. Uh, little pithy quote that I could go with. It's, a, it's like a ski quote. Uh, no bad days, just bad gear. You know, just the idea that like, you know, every weather day is a, is, is a every day is a, a blessing. If it's, if it's raining, if it's cold, you just get the right gear and you go out and you have a great day. I like that. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership